Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. We release our podcasts in three different formats. We have our seminar series, which allows us the chance to listen back to seminars and presentations from previous events. We have our 10-minute lesson series, where we set out policy issues and just hit on the key points that we think people need to know in that short space of time. And then we have our interview series where we chat to policy experts again about a really wide range of policy topics. This week it's one of those but ever so slightly different. Following on from Colette's 10-minute lesson last week on the survey on income and living conditions for 2022, myself, my colleagues Colette Bennett and Michelle Murphy just unpack those figures and to talk about what they actually mean in reality, who's impacted, what deprivation is, the types of policy proposals that we have put forward and what the next steps for government should be if they're really serious about tackling the issue of poverty in Ireland in 2023. We hope you enjoy. So, Colette, you took us through the numbers last week in a 10-minute lesson, but for anybody who hasn't listened to it, you might just give us a quick recap, I suppose, maybe where the figures come from what they yes. show very briefly. So they come from the Silk Survey. So the, the Survey on Income and Living Conditions, S-I-L-C. And it's it's a European-wide survey. And for Ireland, it's conducted by the Central Statistics Office or the CSO. It's conducted every year um, and they take a sample. It's It's roughly between kind of 10 and 13,000 people. I think this year was around 11,000 or last year was around 11,000. And you're looking at about four to 5,000 households. And they ask a fairly extensive list of questions about people's living conditions, what income they're earning, you know, what it's made up of. So whether it's social welfare or whether it's employment income or what have you, um, they look at household composition. So, you know, is it a, a one earner household? one adult, two adults and children, one adult with children, and then age ranges. So you've got your kind of, your under, well, your 17s and under, then you have your kind of working age people, and then you have your 65 plus. Um, and it also asks questions around your household characteristics and your employment status. So whether you're a student or you're employed or you're unemployed, um, whether you're retired, whether you're on home duties or if you're unable to work due to a long term illness or disability um, and that basically they collect all of that data, they analyze it and then they they equivalize it. So when we talk about poverty numbers and the poverty line, it's essentially what we're looking at is 60 percent of the equivalized median disposable income. So to get the median part, if you were to line everybody up in Ireland from the, the very lowest earner to the very highest income, um, the person who's in the middle is the, the median. If you were to get 60% of that, that is roughly your poverty line, but to equivalize it, and that is basically to be able to compare it to other household types. So there's a bit of a calculation that's done on that. So the calculation is it's uh, 100% for the, the first adult, it's 66% added to that for the second adult. So um, so a two adult household is considered to have an equivalized income that is 1.66 um, or sorry, 
166% of a one adult household. And then for every child, it's 33%. Um, so that's how the, the equivalization works. And that lets you compare one household type with another household type. Um, and what we saw in the 2022 data was that it, there's actually been an increase since 2021 in the number of people who are living below the poverty line. There's now 13.1% of the population or 671,000 people. When the CSO released these figures, they released them as percentages. And the first thing we do is we turn that into numbers. So we look to see how many people does that actually mean? And we would spend a lot of that day then doing media after we put out our news release. And Michelle, the first question I was asked a lot was, was I surprised by the figures? So were you surprised by the figures? No, I wasn't. And I suppose I don't think many people who would be working in this area or look tracking those figures over time would be hugely surprised, given the impact that income and income adequacy has on poverty. Uh, so one would expect that those with inadequate incomes or incomes below the poverty line, you have a large uh, cohort of people who are on fixed incomes who are within those categories uh, at a time when costs are rising and their income is not rising at the same time. It shouldn't be surprising that you would see the numbers increase. I suppose what will be interesting to see is we saw uh, you know, a significant increase in the number of children what impact this might have on the child well-being and poverty unit that is currently being established in the Department of Antishuk and what impact that will have on the work between that unit and the unit that is being set up in the Department of Children, Equality, Disability and Integration and Youth to manage Ireland's uh, contribution to the EU Child Guarantee, which covers things like uh, access to housing, healthcare, education, employment, nutritious meals and you know there's a huge uh, amount of overlap there so while one wouldn't be surprised with the increases in numbers we shouldn't be any less concerned than we were this time last year and I suppose looking to 2023 um, it's not likely that we will see a, a, a decrease in those numbers I would be very surprised if there's a decrease and uh, we had the deprivation figures out in December it was also an increase in deprivation as well, which would be expected at a time when costs are rising. Hella, can you just clarify for us, because I suppose I, I'm kind of along the same lines as Michelle in thinking that the silk for 2023, we're probably going to see the numbers rise, but there has been a change in the methodology. Can you just talk us through that? Yeah, so, I mean, any rise in numbers between like this year, 23, and last year, 22, will be comparative so it was since the silk in 2020 there was a change in methodology so there was a change in how certain types of incomes were recorded and there was a change in terms of the time frames that were used so the way it's going to work now is the or sorry the way it works for 2022 anyway was that the income reference period was the previous year so it was 2021 but all of the other survey responses related to 2022 and the surveys took place in the first quarter of the year. So the same thing is likely to happen this year, that the surveys will take place early in this year with a, a publication date probably towards the end of the year for Silk 2023. So that lines up then with a, an EU wide programme in terms of how this data is collected and published. 
just to pick up on something Michelle said, which is the link between welfare and poverty and the impact that sufficient welfare has on poverty rates. And this is the bit that I can't understand. We have numerous targets, be it in the programme for government, be it now, you know, national child poverty targets, be it fuel poverty targets, we've got food poverty, you know, commitment coming on, we've got the sustainable development goals, we've strategies to combat energy poverty. I could go on and on and on and on about all of these targets and all of these goals we have to eradicate poverty or to manage it or to bring it under a certain level. And yet when we do our pre-budget submissions to look for an increase in social welfare of X amount, we don't get it. What am I missing? Well, I suppose when you're making when we're making our pre-budget submission looking and we're not just picking numbers out of the sky when we look for an increase in social welfare, we're looking for it to be indexed against average earnings against 27.5% of average earnings and then looking for an increase over time to get that up to 30%. So that is what we're basing our proposals on. And last year we looked for a a 20 euro increase. When you're making a submission into the pre-budget process, obviously it goes to the departments and there's the Department of Social Protection pre-budget forum which is run by the ministers and you you meet the officials. But ultimately what you're doing is you're uh, submitting into a political process. And while there are targets, national targets that we set ourselves, and those are also national commitments to reduce poverty, and we have a separate target for child poverty, for example, and the roadmap for social inclusion, we haven't had a commensurate political commitment at the same time to index and benchmark core social welfare rates and increase them over time so as to reduce the incidence of poverty particularly in households and fixed incomes so i suppose therein is the why while there there we have a rationale for the increases that we're asking for and the indexation and benchmark that we want Ultimately, it is uh, those who are in government and the government parties who make the decisions on budget day as to what changes are made in terms of social welfare rates. I suppose what's interesting is if you look at the experience of other countries where they do benchmark, as was in Australia, for example, in the UK, they benchmark the, the pension, for example. And the department here did look at benchmarking when it came to pensions. And there was a public consultation on that a number of years ago and submissions were made. But that that process seems to have stalled. But what that would have done, and if you do that, it does take that issue out of the political and budgetary theatre, for want of a a better phrase, because it gives certainty to people. And if you are going to benchmark against earnings, for example, then government has certainty as to how, how much it's going to spend on welfare each year. And people have certainty in terms of what their income is going to be. But what that does do, then it takes it out of that theatre element where pillar politicians will decide what your income is going to be and what the increase is going to be. That's a really important point, I think, that that whole theatre part of it, because we did a lot of media in the run up to the budget last year. And a lot of it centred around, you know, should people who don't work get any increase at all? Are we just wasting our money on these spongers kind of thing? And it was like you spend so much time trying to debunk that part of it that your six or eight minutes in your interview is half over by the time you actually get to the policy part of it. Because really, you know, it's not about deserving or undeserving. Welfare is a policy and it it deserves to do something. It should, you know, it was designed 
with protection of the most vulnerable and marginalized in mind, what that protection looks like should be to give a reasonable standard of living. We're not talking about 25 foreign holidays a year. We're talking about enough to buy your groceries and heat your home and keep the roof over your head. Um, And, you know, at the moment, it's not promising that. And, you know, it wasn't promising that even before the cost of living spikes, but it certainly isn't doing it now. That's really key, I think. You've got €220 as a single adult. That's supposed to put the roof over your head. Your rent has to come out of that. Your food, your light bill, your heat bill, refuse charges, any travel, any health costs, social inclusion, so access to culture, the arts, any hobbies you might have, any interests you have your clothing, your footwear, your haircut, any personal care, if you want to keep a pet, your leisure time, your TV license, your communication, there's more. Household goods, education, what am I missing? Saving, contingencies, insurance, all of that has to come out of 220 euro. And with the best will in the world, that simply isn't possible because that small amount of money really has to go such an incredibly long way and it doesn't do it. There's no link between that arbitrary figure of 220, because that's basically based on there was 183, we added a fiver, then we added another fiver, and then we left it alone, then we came back and added another fiver. It's not grounded in any kind of reality in in a social protection sense. It's not, but it's not really, I suppose, where you'd see the impact of that income adequacy piece is more in the deprivation side of, of things that Michelle was talking about. Mm-hmm. So that's why you see... It, it's higher and it's always higher. Deprivation is, is always higher. So last year it was 17.7%. You're talking almost a million people who are going without the basics. It's, and you know, to be in enforced deprivation, you're talking doing without two of 11 basic things. So two strong pairs of shoes, a warm winter coat, um, socializing every couple of weeks, a roast dinner once a week or a qu- vegetarian equivalent. And it's not about and it's it's one of those things that people tend to kind of almost knee jerk react to, you know, well, what if I if I choose not to buy a roast dinner? It's like it's not about whether you choose not to buy it. It's whether you could if you chose to. It's all about affordability, things like worn out furniture and stuff. And I kind of laugh when, you know, we talk about having enough for contingency savings to put something away. If it's even if it's a tenner a month, like just something for unexpected costs, there's no capacity in uh, a fixed income to be able to do that. And yet, or even on a low income to be able to do that. I mean, we've we've 133,000 people in work who are also below the poverty line. Um, and that has increased by 40% on the previous year. There's no capacity to save there. And yet the policy around social welfare means that you don't get paid for the first three days that you actually need it. So the whole thing, there's a, there's a lack of coherence in the whole thing. But I think a lot of that comes from a total lack of understanding, whether that's willful or ignorant, on what a, a welfare is meant to do and the function of a welfare payment. So when you look at the silk figures about who's impacted by poverty most, can you just give us a flavour of the sort of findings that they came out with? Yes, yeah, so in terms of children, looking at the numbers, it's about 188,000 children are so they're living in households they're obviously not living alone child poverty is a family poverty issue you know it can't just be solved by child benefit it's looking at household income 
if you're looking at older people, there's over 143,000 older people living in poverty, um, a significant e increase of 55,000 since last year. Then looking at, I suppose, the more regional breakdown, which shouldn't really surprise it, be surprising. So the North and West region would have the highest poverty rate in the country. So you're looking at 170,000 plus people living in poverty in the North and Western region. In the Southern region, 236,000 and in the eastern region, 287,000 people. So that's what we're looking at. I suppose then you mentioned targets, Suzanne. I suppose what's interesting is we've never really, we've never met our targets. And one could argue that our targets aren't necessarily ambitious. You know, we would certainly argue that they're not ambitious. We've had the midterm review of the roadmap for social inclusion and we, it remains to be seen. It's unlikely that we're going to meet the targets that are that, that are in the roadmap for social inclusion, which is unfortunate. But at the same time, it won't come as a surprise really to any of us who I suppose have been looking at that, this issue over time. And then I suppose when you look at those numbers and you look at the amount of people and then, as you say, Suzanne, you wonder, well, why? You know, why don't we do things like increase core social welfare rates. For example, if you look at households headed by people with a disability, why do they have such high poverty rates or households with children headed by a lone parent? And it's consistently been that way. So, you know, the question is then, what are the kind of things that you can do to actually reduce poverty in those households? Obviously, one of those things is income, particularly for fixed income households. So looking at social welfare rates and benchmarking them and indexing them so that they're at a rate that someone can at least have a basic standard of living. But then you need to look, as Colette said, there's people who are in employment who are living in poverty. So how do you support those people, for example, because they're not on, they're not reliant on social welfare, they're not in a fixed income, they're in a job, but they're still living in poverty. So what are the kind of things that you do for those households? Uh, what about children? You know, you need to target their parents as well as the child, for example. And what's really interesting, if you look at children who are exposed to persistent economic vulnerability or persistent economic poverty, if you look at the growing up in Ireland surveys and the figures there, it's the 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 maternal outcomes are the key indicators there. So the occupation of the mother, the primary care giver the education level, whether, the, you know, that mother is parenting alone or has a partner. Those are hugely important factors in whether a child is going to be exposed to poverty for, you know, a considerable period of time or not. So, I mean, the numbers should make us question, well, what kind of policies are we implementing? What is and isn't working and what policies could work? You know, because clearly what we're doing isn't working. If it was, you wouldn't have 671,000 people living in poverty in 2023. And it's the it's the long term impact of that as well. Like there is, you know, Michelle talked about the, the growing up in Ireland studies and the there have been studies around the kind of intergenerational nature of it. So if you grew up in poverty, your, your children are more likely to grow up in poverty as well. And it's it's that kind of cyclical thing. But I had a conversation with Cottle McCrory from Tilda last year and he that's the 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 longitudinal study for for aging based in trinity and he was saying that you know it's it's also like child poverty 
and deprivation it's it's or adversity it's also one of those indicators that can have an impact on the the length of your life like it can knock off years just by virtue of the fact that you have grown up in poverty i suppose it, there's there's a, a greater impact on the life expectancy of those who were in poverty as children and then kind of came out of poverty into adulthood um, then there were of those who were had kind of a more affluent childhood, but went into poverty as adults. They are more likely to live longer than those who are, you know, who are adults now who are relatively well off, but who had a, a poor start in life. And um, so it's critically important that this is addressed, you know, in a very holistic way. Again, Michelle said it's not just about the children, it's about the families and for for that group that's constantly coming through on the the data around poverty, one parent families, and they tend to be headed by women. It's about mothers. It's about supports. You know, it's not necessarily about jobs activation. Big thing about linking those two things, but certainly about making sure that the supports are put in place so that families are not falling consistently falling below the poverty line. So yeah, there's two things. If, if a household is living in poverty and is reliant on welfare, that's a conversation about welfare. And if a household is living in poverty and is employment, then that's a conversation about poor job quality and poor wages. And they will require two separate prongs of attack, I suppose. But you've also got, as you said, the carers, anybody living with a long-term disability or illness and older households as well. So like that's really concerning that as we age again we're more and more likely to enter poverty if pensions aren't adequate the headlines just today on the on the, the news at lunchtime were about hospitals again really really under pressure in their emergency departments so this is all linked if somebody can stay well at home and warm and look after themselves and has access to all of the supports that they need in their community there's a payoff somewhere else in the system they're not presenting as you said mm. Suzanne you know that older person is warm at home they're not afraid to turn on their heating be, you know because they're worried about money or the next bill you know they're confident that their income will be able to to cover their bills so they'll turn on their heating they're getting all the prescription medicine that may they may require because they have sufficient income that allows them to do so they're not worried for example if they can afford if they're renting mm -hmm. if they can afford their their rent or their housing costs and if a person can do that and have a nutritious meal then you know they're less likely to be going to their gp because they're unable to keep on top of their medicines for you know you're more likely to have a chronic illness as you age so you are going to require some sort of medicine for that illness, you're less likely to presenting be presenting to your GP or to the health services, you know, in the emergency rooms because you're going to be living in better health. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And as you have pointed out before, Suzanne, um, for every euro that we don't pay out in social welfare payments that we don't increase them by, then another department is just paying for that. You know, that that's the the reality of of how it is and and how it works, which I suppose does beg the question then, um, 
you know, what are the things that we should be doing? Income obviously is a key element here, but it's also the services that people have access to as well and the kind of services they have access to, where those services are, whether they have to pay for them or not. And, you know, are they sufficient for their needs? And clearly, if you look at most of the, you know, if you look at GP services, education services, childcare, healthcare, just care, care in general, uh, you know, care for older adults or or the services that children with additional needs might need. We're, we're as a state, we, we're not doing a good job in terms of providing those services either. So all of that obviously impacts on an individual's well-being uh, and on their quality of life. The broader societal impacts of all of this, I mean, it's, it is back to what you've been saying, you know, you don't spend it here, you're going to spend it there. And there could be housing, could be job seekers, could be health. You know, it's it's going to come. That spend is going to have to be made somewhere in the system and it's going to have to be made. And I think this is probably part of the problem. You know, we think in terms of as a, as a government thinks in terms of, of five year cycles um or two and a half year cycles and we think in terms of legacy rather than what is actually needed into the longer term so if i can save on social welfare today it doesn't really matter if that's down the pipeline in education or health or housing in 10 years time because that's somebody else's problem uh, rather than looking at uh, a much more societal thing of, well, actually, it's everybody's problem. Uh, what kind of society do you want to live in and what kind of security do you want to have for the future? And we're seeing it. And, it you know, this is probably meandering far off topic now, so you can cut it out if you want. <laughs> but we're seeing it, you know, even with the response to migration now. So we're seeing it in terms of immigration and well if 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 you're getting that means i'm not getting and there's a whole psychology behind you know we become more conservative if we are more cognitively constrained so if we are under pressure then we become far more i suppose protective of what's ours or what's perceived to be ours so you know you've got communities that have been had underinvestment for decades and the only reason they have spaces available to warehouse people, and that is what it is, uh, is because of underinvestment. Like there shouldn't be pubs and warehouses and factories that are lying idle and empty. They wouldn't be in other areas in a time of full employment and high economic growth. They wouldn't be in other areas, but they are in specific areas because those areas have always had underinvestment or certainly have had for the last four decades. So you're now having a situation where government is trying to, to accommodate people, but that accommodation ends with putting a roof over someone's head. There's no discussion around, well, how do you actually resource that you know, how do you resource the increased need for psychological services, for health, for general health services, for education, for for transport, for broadband, for everything? And that would apply and should apply. That type of engagement should apply no matter where those people are coming from. You know, if you build an apartment block and you've got 100 people who are going to move in in the next couple of months, you want to have some sort of a plan of where the rest of the, the system is going to be, where the amenities are going to be and the services that are needed. So it's, you know, and it, I think it's quite disingenuous to have a minister come out and say, there's no point in consulting with some people. Some people, fine, 
but not whole communities who might have genuine concerns. And those genuine concerns are born out of having been underinvested in and having a, a sufficiency problem for decades. And that's where that is. That's bread. Poverty is having to go without. You're making, we don't like saying decisions or choices because they're not really decisions or choices. You are having to make that limited amount of money go as far as it possibly can. And the damage that that's done, as you said, societally and individually, there's a cost to that. And there always has been. But I, I appreciate that if you are the minister for, you know, for social protection, whoever that is, at whatever stage that is, if that minister ends up reducing hospital waiting lists, they won't get thanked for reducing hospital waiting lists. So I can see how it, it you know, it can be a hard sell because you're not really joining the dots, but everything is connected. If you have poor housing, your educational outcomes are going to be impacted. If you have poor access to ed transport, your educational outcome is going to be impacted. If your home isn't warm enough, then you are going to end up in, in health and then it's the Department of Health. Like that lack of joined up is is the really that's the bit that I I really really struggle with and it makes me very 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 angry uh, a lot of the time that I'm kind of going this is simple this is really simple why are we discussing again we've just you know inputted into new national child poverty targets and I'm thinking just increase core social welfare make sure there's ac access to social housing make sure that school transport is free and that it's accessible make sure that school books are free across the board so so many things have been done to impact on all of that and I do think it's making a difference and I just think well what you know we should be able to do more the money is there again all of our pre-budget stuff is always costed we can show that the money there is a cost the money is being spent no matter what we do and could we spend it smarter? Could we spend it slightly more clever and not do the damage that's being done? The lives that are being ruined, like people aren't allowed to flourish, they aren't allowed to explore all of the options that are available to them. Like when you boil this down to individuals, which is the first thing we do with the CSO figures, we turn it into real people in so much as we can. The, the lack of foresight and that lack of holistic thinking, I think, is is. I just I just don't get it. It's that going without and people being allowed to go without. Well, maybe, you know, we could look at this the other way. If our new teacher can seems very, very concerned with the issue of child poverty, you know, he made a point of it when he took office. So maybe the child poverty and well-being unit could actually take a holistic all of government view of poverty and not just pile po child poverty and maybe just maybe over time it could be renamed the poverty and well-being unit or just the well-being unit and looking at how you might improve the standard of living for everyone but particularly for those who are vulnerable and on low incomes and living in poverty and what are all of the things that you need to do that and how do you make sure that all of the resources of the state are working together to um you know better the lives of those people. I mean, that would be, for me, that would be a great outcome from the establishment of this unit. It would be a really, really, really great outcome. The first outcome I would really like to see, though, is how it's going to coordinate its work with the unit in Minister O'Gorman's department as well on the EU Child Guarantee, because they're all so interlinked. But I think, you know, maybe we could 
be positive and really hope that the Tisha can have a, a broader vision about where this unit might go. We can but hope. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's to me, it kind of stands out so, so clearly. You know, if you want to address child poverty and we've said it before and we'll say it again, you can't just address the poverty of the child. That child lives in a household. So you have to, you know, if that if that group of that department is serious about it, it's going to have to look at things like household income adequacy. It's going to have to look at things like getting to grips with housing and building actual building social housing and you know, forgetting about this whole notion of social housing solutions. I mean, I thought it was laughable at the time when it was introduced. And I think it was last week um, that it was in the news that the Taoiseach himself said, you know, those who are on HAP really are social wealth or social housing tenants. Um, so, you know, it's it's about addressing all of those things. It's about making sure that healthcare is accessible at the point of need as opposed to the point of ability to pay. Um, so, you know, getting to grips with child poverty and well-being would actually mean getting to grips with everything across the board. If we're right or I'm right about the cycle, the two and a half year or five year cycle, and if they're really serious about meeting any sort of a target or having any sort of success within that whole space, then you've got less than two years, really to make a difference, to actually show that that is doing something. So I would share Michelle's cautious optimism because it's it's could also be driven by self-interest. You know, if you want to prove that you've got this, then it actually, you have to show the outcomes of it. You have to show the impact of that whole thing. And it's going to be difficult to do, but we don't call, call our pre-budget submission budget choices for nothing. They are choices that are made and there is money to be used in that. You know, even the Oxfam report, the Irish version of that or the Irish introduction to that showed that a very, very modest wealth tax could generate 8.2 billion. You could do an awful lot with 8.2 billion a year in all of those spaces. And that was on extreme wealth. Extreme extreme wealth. Yeah. So, you know, just because I know when people hear a wealth tax, they clutch their pearls and think, oh, no, uh, not me. But we are talking extreme wealth. We are talking... We're talking very low percentages on millionaires plus. Yeah. Yeah. And when you look at income adequacy, I would have thought that if you are a billionaire paying a small percentage of that in tax, your needs should be met quite adequately, I would have hoped, by the time you reach that level, that paying back into the system you know, if you're a businessman that is benefiting from the education of your workforce, the housing of your workforce, transport links to your workforce, again, everything is linked up. It all makes sense. I think we've probably touched on a lot of our asks as we were going through the conversation. I might just add one in. Um, we are looking for persistent poverty to be used as the primary indicator. Can somebody explain that just to set it out why it's different from at risk of and consistent? Well, persistent poverty, and it is measured at EU level, but we we haven't measured it here yet, or we haven't managed to, get, I suppose, get the sampling right yet in terms of, I suppose, embedding it in the silk survey. What it does, it measures the proportion of the population who are living below the poverty line in the current year and two of the three preceding years. 
So you'd be looking at, for example, if you picked 2023 um, and you were trying to measure persistent poverty. So what proportion of the people who were living in poverty or below the poverty line in 2023 and were also living in poverty in 20, either 2022, 2021 or 2020? And it's that great. It's, it's the consistent exposure to income inadequacy. That, that's what it measures. We haven't made it part of the, the the silk survey yet, but if you can look at it in relation to children at the if you look at the growing up in Ireland survey, and one of the things that they found looking at the cohort from two two cohorts, but it goes from 2007 to 2017, four in ten children have, have experienced poverty, but about half of those have experienced persistent poverty. And the outcomes for that group, obviously, they're the same outcomes. So you have poor health outcomes, you have poor socioeconomic outcomes, you just have poor social outcomes, poor educational outcomes. But then the group in persistent poverty, there seems to be um, their persistence around their poverty is more socially structured. So, for example, then, if you look into those households, you can see and this is just looking at children. So it's not looking at other households. You can see the issue around uh, maternal education, maternal ethnicity, if there's a disability in the household, um, maternal occupation, for example. So it gives you the picture of that group in society who are particularly vulnerable. And obviously, you probably need an additional level of support for that group. But to date, we haven't seen it as yet, but hopefully uh, we do know the CSAO are looking at the, I suppose, the, the sampling and technical issues. So hopefully we will see it into the future, because I think that would really assist Suzanne in that whole um, element of actually looking at what are the right policies that we need to put in place to reduce the numbers of people living in poverty and particularly the, those who are exposed to poverty, persistent poverty. So they're they're below the poverty line for a number of years. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Michelle. It's really important to unpack those numbers and talk about what they mean in reality. We hope you found the conversation useful. And if there's any ideas you have for future episodes, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.